Okay, reading from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, which is on page 681. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abahud, Abahud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Have you ever come across those YouTube videos where people unbox products? In the old days, you used to get a subscription to Choice magazine, right? Well, I don't think so anymore. These days, you just Google what you're interested in and then you watch a five-minute video about it. Now, these people, they open something up, they get it out of the box and they show you what's in it, they show you what it's for, they show you what's good about it, what's not so good about it. Well, today and and next week and on Christmas Day, we're going to unbox Christmas. Now, obviously, Christmas is not some boring product to be reviewed. Uh, It's not a product that is to be purchased or passed over. Christmas is all about God's gift to us. It's a priceless, life-changing, beautiful gift. And of course, you just can't compare it to a toaster or a PlayStation And no YouTube video or or sermon can ever capture the true depths of what God is giving us at Christmas. But having said all that, the vast majority of people in the world leave God's gift of Christmas in the box. And we could do the same. We could leave the gift in the box and not really open it up and not really understand it. And so today and, and next week... We're going to unwrap Christmas, we're going to open the box and we're going to talk about some of the wonders of Christmas as we work through the start of Matthew's account of Jesus' life. Now today, as you just heard, we're talking about something that we usually just want to jump over in the Christmas story. 
we're going to unbox the genealogy of Jesus because that's where Matthew starts. Now, most of us don't really think of the genealogy as being relevant to the Christmas story. You know, I've got to admit that in my own personal Bible reading, when I come across genealogies like this one, I often kind of read them a little bit like this. Abraham was the father of blah, 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 was the father of blah, blah. Thus, there were 14 generations from blah, blah to blah, blah. Now, on with the real story. Do you ever do that? (laughs) But if we do that, we're actually missing part of the real story. Because Jesus' genealogy tells a story. In fact, all genealogies tell stories. This Christmas, I've I've heard it advertised a few times, that you can buy someone a kit so that they can have their DNA tested to find out their origins. According to this ad here, for $89, you can uncover your ethnic origins and find new relatives. I'm really not sure that that's clever marketing. Find new relatives unless you can trade them in, the old ones. Another company, though, has a better marketing slogan, complete your story. And I reckon that's what people are looking for in discovering their origins. They're looking for a greater understanding of themselves. They're looking for a sense of belonging. They're looking for their story. But let's be honest, though, when other people come to you telling you their genealogy stories, they're not particularly interesting to anyone except them. For me, the most exciting my genealogy gets is that I have Scottish heritage, but not enough to justify wearing a kilt, (laughs) at least not in public. And the most disturbing that my my family tree gets is that I've got a bit of Kiwi a few generations back. (laughs) See, my genealogy is boring even to me. But still, nonetheless, it tells me something of my story. It tells me something of who I am even if it is boring. But it's quite different with Jesus. Jesus' genealogy has quite a few surprises in there. It has some very distinguished people and it also has some very notorious people and it has quite a few random, surprising people too. And Jesus' genealogy, it tells us all sorts of things about him, but not just him actually, because his genealogy tells the story of God's people. And it tells us the story of God's plans for his world and it reveals something of his character. And because of that, it's not boring. And it even holds the potential to give us a greater understanding of ourselves and a true sense of belonging to God's people and God's plans because Jesus invites us to join our story to his story. So we're going to unbox Christmas by unboxing Matthew's genealogy. And the first thing that we need to notice is that Matthew has crafted this genealogy. He's crafted it to tell a true story. Now, I said before that all genealogies tell stories, but this was definitely more the case for them than it is for us today. Our genealogies tend to be complete lists of names that stretch back in time, a list of boring names with no gaps. But their genealogies were crafted. They were still true, but they were selective. They would skip generations and they would arrange things in certain ways to tell the story. Now, we might think, hey, you can't do that. But why can't they? They're trying to do something different with genealogies than what we try to do today. 
And because they're focused on telling the story, their genealogies are actually interesting. Matthew tells us right up front the story that he wants his genealogy to tell. Look at verse 1. He says, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The storyline of Matthew's genealogy is that Jesus is the promised king. Now, it seems like Matthew doesn't believe in surprises. There's, there's no kind of spoiler alert. He just tells us straight up who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. That, that's his title. In um, Hebrew, you say um, Mashiach, which translates into English with less spit as Messiah. But in Greek, Mashiach translates into Christos, which transliterate, transliterates into English as Christ. Now, it's a bit confusing, but they all mean the same thing. Messiah, Christ, Christos, Mashiach. They all mean anointed one, which means that this is a story about Jesus being the long-awaited promised king that God has chosen to rule his people. And the rest of, of the book of Matthew is all about what kind of promised king Jesus is going to prove to be. But the genealogy already starts to unbox that question, what kind of king, promised king, is Jesus going to be? Because we read, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Matthew wants to show us that Jesus stands in a lineup with the greatest of all the kings over Israel, King David. And so what we have here in front of us is not merely a list of, of boring names. It's not even just a family tree, actually. What we have is a royal lineage. Once the names get to David, in verse 6, we see who sat on the throne in Jerusalem. And after the exile to Babylon, in verse 12... It shows who would have been entitled to sit on the throne in Jerusalem the minute that Israel gained its independence from the people ruling over them. Now, just before we, we move, move on to unpack some of this genealogy, did you know that Matthew's genealogy is quite different to Luke's genealogy? Have you ever noticed that? Does that worry you? In Luke, Joseph's father is Heli, but... In Matthew, it's Jacob. It's a bit of a problem, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I don't like the idea of there being mistakes in the Bible. There's some people, though, who love the idea of there being mistakes in the Bible. There are some people who, who just read the Bible for moments like this. They, they read it looking as hard as they can for inconsistencies so that they can point out to you why you're stupid for believing the Bible. Some people hold up Luke's genealogy alongside Matthew's and they say, how can Joseph's father be Heli and Luke and, and Jacob in Matthew? It's a very good question, actually. But some people ask it not because they want to know the answer, but because they think they already know the answer. Lots of people think they already know Jesus' identity. And sometimes they accuse Christians of being closed-minded. But in reality, no matter what they receive in the way of evidence, they've already made their minds up about Jesus and that clouds their judgment. And that, unfortunately, is being closed-minded. It's like they've already decided what's in the box without being willing to really unbox it and have a look. And if we do that, 
whether we're an atheist or an agnostic or even a religious person, then we'll never discover the true Jesus, the true Messiah. We'll just be rejecting our made-up version of him. If you're not sure about Jesus, don't do that. (laughs) Investigate who he really is and you might be surprised actually what you find out about him. There are several reasons why Luke's genealogy is different to Matthew's, but probably the best two possibilities are that either Luke is following Mary's bloodline, because as he says, Jesus was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. He was not actually his biological son. That's a possibility. But most likely what's going on is that Matthew's list is concerned with biological Sorry, Matthew's list is not concerned with biological relationships. Matthew's list is all about legal ancestry. It's a succession list. It's a royal lineage. And kingship doesn't always go from father to son. It usually stays within the wider family, but there's adoption, just like Jesus is adopted by Joseph. And in the case of a king having no children, the next heir in line may well be a nephew. So Luke's genealogy, it it focuses on the biological relationships of Joseph. It starts with the question, who was Joseph's father? And the answer to that question is Heli. Whereas Matthew's genealogy, it focuses on the kingship lineage. And it starts with the question, who was the heir to David's throne? And the answer is first Solomon. But if you keep following it all the way down, the answer is Joseph and eventually Jesus. So at first it looks like a problem, but in the end, if you read the Bible fairly, you see that it's not actually a problem. Do you know that that Christians, it's like we put our heads on the chopping block. Because we believe in both objective truth and we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And so prove that the Bible is wrong and you've killed Christianity. You really have. We make ourselves as Christians incredibly vulnerable claiming to hold the truth. And yet after 2,000 years, despite many axes swinging, no one has been able to prove Christianity wrong. People try, but time and time again they show that they're reading the Bible wrong or something crops up in archaeology that confirms the Bible or some other ancient manuscript turns up showing that the Bible is actually right. So let's go back to Matthew's list. Matthew is carefully showing us that Jesus comes into this world in a real historical context. And notice that while Matthew doesn't make stuff up, he does craft his genealogy, as I said before, he crafts it to tell a story. Do you notice the way that Matthew adds in tiny little bits of commentary the whole way through? So look at verse 2, for instance. He says, Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers... Why does he say this? Well, it's because he wants his readers to remember the story. He wants them to think particularly of Genesis 49, which we just happened to look at last week, right? In Genesis 49, just before Jacob dies, what does he do? Well, he blesses his sons. But he says to Judah, your father's sons will bow down to you. And he says in verse 10, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of nations shall be his. 
See what Matthew is doing? He's reminding the readers of what's promised. He's showing that Jesus is this promised descendant of Judah, this promised king. And it's the same in verse 6. It's not just a list of names. Matthew writes, Jesse, the father of King David. And again, Matthew wants his readers to remember the story. And particularly, he wants us to remember 2 Samuel 7, where God promised David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Matthew's showing us that Jesus is this promised king, because Solomon, David's son, never fully fulfilled this, only partly fulfilled this. Jesus is this long-awaited promised king. And then in verse 11, Matthew highlights Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Why? Well, again, he wants his readers to remember the story. He wants them to think particularly of of Jeremiah 22 and, and 23. Jeconiah is another name for Jehoiakim, just when it's, you know, as if it's not complicated enough. You also have to deal with multiple names of people. So in Jeremiah 22, it talks about Jehoiakim, and and he was the last of many terrible kings. And through Jeremiah, God said to him in verse 30, this is what the Lord says, record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper, none will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. But then just a few verses later, over into chapter 23, God goes on to say, The days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous saviour. Matthew is showing that, that Jesus is this promised king who will be different to all the other kings who've come before him and failed. His genealogy is is crafted to show that Jesus is not simply another king in a long line of kings with another king to follow him. Matthew's point is that Jesus' coming is about fulfilling all the hopes and dreams of hundreds and hundreds of years of history. Jesus is not a Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's the promised king, the king of kings. And there's even more to the way that Matthew has crafted things here. Through this genealogy, he's telling a story that has four parts. Look at verse 17. He says, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. That's part one of the story. It's all about God starting up the kingship. Then he goes on, There were 14 from David to the exile to Babylon. That's part two of the story. It's all about the kingship being a complete failure and coming to a miserable end. Then he goes on, there were 14 from the exile to the Messiah. That's part three. It's all about the longing for a king who will be different, who will undo the failure of the previous kings, undo the failure of God's people, undo the failure of the entire world. And what about part four? Well, that's what Matthew's account of Jesus' life is all about. It's part four in this story. 
And it begins with Christmas. Christmas is the beginning of part four. The coming of the chosen one, the Messiah, the promised king, come to undo the failure of the world. It's like everything before Jesus is just the back of the box, really, giving you an idea of what's in the box. And all these people named in these lists, they all point to Jesus and they all say to you, open the box. Find out what God's chosen king is really like. Open the box and find the leader you need, the king of kings. That's the true story that Matthew wants us to hear. That's the story that his genealogy tells. But if we're going to properly unbox Christmas and properly unbox this genealogy, then we're not quite done yet. Because I skipped over some other comments that Matthew puts in there. And this is where we meet some notorious and some random people in Jesus' genealogy. There are four comments that are all a bit similar. Have a look at them. In verse 3, we see the first one. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And then verse 5, Salmon. I don't know why we don't just say Semen. But anyway, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And then look at verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. All these four comments, they highlight four mums. But why? What's so special about these four women? Why does Matthew highlight them in the story? There are three main possibilities why he does that. And the first possibility is that Matthew is highlighting the importance that women play in Jesus' story. So if you keep reading in the Gospels, you'll see that women play a huge part in the life of Jesus. It's true that they do. They were his close friends. They helped support him and make his ministry possible. They proved, really, to be better disciples than the men. And they were the first witnesses of his resurrection, even though back then their testimony wasn't given equal weight with men's testimony in their society. Terrible. Now, all of this is true, but it doesn't really tie into Matthew's focus, which is Jesus being the promised king. So I think we've got to keep looking if we're going to find out what Matthew is doing with these these four women. The second possibility is that Matthew is highlighting the way God uses questionable and messy circumstances to work out his plans. Tamar, she got pregnant with Perez and and Zira, who were twins, by her father-in-law when she was posing as a prostitute. That's pretty messy. That's dodgy stuff. Rahab had also been a prostitute and Solomon was the product of an affair between David and Uriah's wife. Notice that it points that out. Now again, it's true that God's not afraid to work through messy circumstances and in Jesus' ministry, he's a friend to all sorts of people. He doesn't reject even prostitutes. At one point, you might remember, a woman washes Jesus' feet with her tears and dries his feet with her hair. And the religious leaders are disgusted that Jesus would be so close and so intimate with a sinful woman like this. And what does Jesus say? He says to them, those who are forgiven much, love much. God loves to save sinners. He loves to restore them and make them a part of his plan. And it's beautiful the way that God works. But the problem with this idea, even though all that is true, 
is that it, it only properly works for three out of the four women in the list. And again, it doesn't really have that much to do with Jesus being the promised king. The third and the most likely possibility is that Matthew is highlighting these four women because none of them are Israelites. They're all women who who joined their stories into God's stories, in God's story. So Tamar was a, a Canaanite and so was Rahab. Ruth was a Moabite and Bathsheba was a Hittite. But they all threw their lot in with God's people. They all threw their their lot in with God's plan to save his world through his promised king. Matthew is giving us a taste of what Jesus is on about. And he ends his eyewitness account of Jesus' life with Jesus saying these last words in, in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is the promised king who will have all authority over all people and even his royal lineage here at the beginning tells that story. And so really the storyline of Matthew's genealogy is that Jesus is the promised king of all. So that's Matthew's genealogy. But what exactly have we unboxed about Christmas? Well, I reckon there's, there's five quick things that we've unboxed. We've seen that Christmas is all about real people. This is a true story. Jesus is born into a, a real royal dynasty in history. We've seen that Christmas is all about a real plan. God always intended Jesus to be the King of Kings. And God has been working his plan out over hundreds and hundreds of years. We've seen that Christmas is all about a real need. God's people and God's world needs a leader, a king who won't fail them, a king who will undo the mess of this world and and the mess of our own lives as well. And we've seen that Christmas is all about a real solution. Jesus is the leader we need. Jesus makes a real difference to the problems of this world and to the problems of our lives. And this means that he makes a way for us to be forgiven by God. Which means Christmas needs a real response. Christmas is a gift that God has given to each one of us. But it really is up to each one of us to unbox the gift. You know, there are some gifts that don't really matter if you, if you leave them in the box or not. Someone once gave me this um, special edition $1 coin. They didn't know me very well. It's not life-changing for me. And as you can see, that's a, that's a picture of it. It hasn't come out of its wrapping. It's, it's still in its box. And it sits in a drawer unthought of until I need a sermon illustration. <laughs> but some gifts they're really not a good idea to leave in the box. Like this one. A puppy. A gift like this is somewhat life-changing. Just ask the Lockwoods down here. If you get a puppy for Christmas, it it means that they're going to cry all Christmas night and you're going to think you've got a newborn baby. They need feeding. They need cleaning up after. You can't just leave them in the box. If we understand 
what God is giving us at Christmas, we'll see even more, infinitely more. It's a gift that we just can't leave in the box. It's of no use to us if we do that. It's of no benefit to us actually at all. God is throwing us a lifeline. God is giving us his own son, the promised king we desperately need. It's the gift of forgiveness. More than that. Why does he give us the gift of forgiveness? It's the gift of relationship. The greatest gift anyone can ever give. It's the gift of joining our story to God's story completely. And properly unboxing Christmas is all about figuring out what it looks like to have Jesus as your king, personal king. Have you done that? Have you entrusted yourself to God's plan? Joined your story in with God's story? Have you decided that Jesus, yeah, he's going to be the king of my life? I saw a video this week of a guy named Dylan that I'm going to play in just a sec, if someone could hit the lights for us um, in a minute. He's a guy who was surprised to find himself doing just that. Have a look at it. Oh, did it not play? Hold on a sec. It's um, on my computer, definitely, if it's not on Scott's. So this guy was an atheist who came across some Christians on university campus and was surprised to find himself interested in what they were talking about. Do you want to plug that in there for me, Paul? Uh, You have to take off that one first, sorry. Now, oops, I don't seem to be up. There we go. Oops, sorry. I'm going to need the sound too, sorry. Bear with. All right. That doesn't quite look right. Okay, here we go. Day when someone handed me a flyer, I looked down and saw that it was Christian and turned around and gave the person a piece of my mind about how I thought Christians were unloving people and how they always seemed to be outraged over people's sins. He invited me to have coffee with him and we started reading Bible. One coffee turned into a weekly Bible reading and over the semester we read all of Mark. The next semester me and Sam started reading through Romans. When we got to chapter 3, I saw that all of humans were bad, all of humans were sinful, and that Christians weren't, yeah, the good people, but the ones that realised how much they needed saving. It really flipped my worldview. After a year of reading Bible with Sam, I told him that I would like to be baptised, and a few months later he actually came to my baptism and was there. I'm here now on NT Mission in Sydney, because I realised that the most loving thing you can do is to share the gospel with the world. 
And that's really what I want to do. <laughs> I love that video because you can see he, he's calling the Bible just Bible. He's, he's so, so raw in Christianity and yet you can see the joy overflowing in his face in what he's discovered, that Jesus is the king that we really need. He's the king all people need. And like this guy says, Dylan says, the most loving thing we can do is to really help unbox Christmas for others so that they can see that too. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your work in history across hundreds and hundreds of years to reveal Jesus as the promised king, the son of David, the king that we need, the king who will overcome the failures of all other kings, of all people, of ourselves, of this world. Make a way for us to be forgiven by you and in relationship with you. Lord, help us to fully unbox that gift, to join our story into your story. And Lord, to know what it means to live with Jesus as our King in this life. We thank you so much for this gift, Lord, and thank you that you have chosen us to enjoy it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.